Welcome this evening. My name is Jennifer Milam. I am the director of the Sydney Intellectual Research Network that runs this Key Text series. And this is the third year that we have been having lectures by academics within the University of Sydney, all of whom work on topics that in some way relate to an idea, a much broader idea of what intellectual history might be. Um, I am very pleased that tonight I'm introducing Natalia Lusti, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies. Natalia's work will be known to many people in this room. She's published several books um, on topics that range from dreams and surrealism, feminism and masculinity, and on issues of psychoanalysis. She's published extensively on uh, women artists as well. Cindy Sherman, she's just come back from Queensland and a symposium there. So that's another interest that relates in many ways to the sort of crossover between issues of gender, issues of psychoanalysis, um, and issues of art making. With Helen Groff, um, a friend of both of ours, in 2013, she published Dreams and Modernity, A Cultural History, uh, a year later, with Julian Murphy, she published Modernism and Masculinity, and her own book in 2007, I'm sure many people in this room have read, on Surrealism, Feminism, and Psychoanalysis. Her current project addresses radical speech, uh, which she's been working on for, for a few years, I think. Um, ten, yeah, that, that's, that's about, that's the length of most of my projects, too. Good. Um, Radical speech, a topic which considers feminist manifestos in the shaping of political modernity. She had several published, she's published several essays out of this project already in Women, a Cultural Review, Australian Literary Studies, and a forthcoming um, lead, lead article on radical vernacular feminism and riot girl <coughs> manifestos in Australian feminist studies. Considering Natalia's research expertise and the subject of manifestos, the occasion of the Art Gallery of New South Wales exhibition manifestos, which opened, I believe, last <coughs> week, or was it the 28th of May, which I think was last week, um, was an ideal opportunity to invite Natalia to contribute to this series on um, the key text series on issues most one of the one of our sort of streams within the Sydney Intellectual History Network has been by uh, the work of people who are thinking through how the creative arts has its own intellectual history. And when I learned more about Natalia's work on manifestos, it seemed a natural fit with some of the earlier uh, lectures that have been given as part of this series and also as part of conferences and symposia that we've held that thinks about how the visual arts or music has its own intellectual history or history of ideas. So I'm very interested in hearing Natalia speak about some of those issues. And I should note that this is also um, was part of my interest in getting Natalia to contribute to a special issue of Intellectual History Review, which she has also um, recently finished an essay for on this topic. So without saying anything more, I'd like to um, invite Natalia up to the podium for her lecture, The Manifesto from Surrealism to the Present. Thank you.
Thanks, Jennifer, um, and thanks to the Intellectual History Network for the invitation uh, to speak tonight, and also many thanks to Ira Ferris for helping to organise and promote the event. And thank you to you all for coming this evening. Um, as Jennifer said, I've been writing and thinking about manifestos for the good part of 10 years, probably longer. So tonight I'm going to share with you just some of the things that both fascinate me, but also sort of um, have in a sense compelled me to investigate what the manifesto does in terms of shaping the broader period of uh, modernity. Okay, the manifesto is a modern discursive mode that seeks to address the tensions and contradictions of the public sphere. Its proliferation across the 20th century, taken up by individuals, political parties, collectivities, artistic avant-garde, social protest movements and identity-based groups ensured its preeminence as a genre premised on its opposition to the dominant political, social and cultural order. In spite of the ubiquity of the manifesto across the 20th century, it remained until quite recently, and I'd say in the last 10 to 15 years, an under-theorised genre. For too long, the manifesto was examined as a minor or ephemeral document, a prelude to the main event or canonical text. In the last decade, this has changed with renewed interest in identifying the manifesto as central to our efforts to understand the conditions and tensions that have come to define modernity. Indeed, the manifesto, through its communication of experience of crisis and rupture from the past, might be said to be a definitive gesture of the modern. So tonight I want to explore the manifesto as a key text of the 20th century, firstly examining the legacy of revolutionary discourse in the avant-garde manifestos of futurism and surrealism, before turning to the feminist manifesto to examine how it responded to the early manifesto's exalted masculine style and also the very real exclusion of women from the revolutionary protocols of the radical public sphere. Then finally, I want to just end with some brief reflections on Julian Roosevelt's artwork installation manifesto, which as Jennifer said, um, is now showing at the Art Gallery uh, of New South Wales. And I'd urge you all to go and have a look at it. It's, it's quite a striking piece. Um, and I think it's striking in part, not only because it kind of reflects and pays homage to the prominence of the manifesto across the 20th century, particularly the art manifesto, but also because it reminds us of the, this kind of sense of dislocation and alienation that manifestos invoke. The manifesto is an important feature of the rise of the modern democratic state and the ideology of the universal subject with universal rights and sensibilities. With the promise of universal rights, the manifesto emerged as a prominent vehicle for contesting the failed promises and exclusions experienced by those outside the legitimate domain of political subjecthood. The manifesto is therefore a genre of repudiation um, of liberal democracy with its conflicted valorisation of individual and universalism. And from this vantage point and through its fervid declarative force, the manifesto takes on its striking performative charge, converting mere words into action-oriented resolutions. The Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels is the text perhaps most readily associated with the man manifesto form. 
commissioned by the Communist League in 1847, Marx and Engels set out to write a political tract that would mobilise the working class to unite in the revolutionary overthrow of capitalism. And of course, the manifesto famously ends with the call to arms, working men of all countries unite. While the Communist Manifesto solidified the manifesto's roots in politi political discourse and its association with the labour movement, it also became an inspirational model for establishing the collective identities and radical programs of the various avant-garde movements of the 20th century. So uh, in a sense, I'm interested uh, in why this is the case. In the hands of Marx and Engels, the manifesto became a new mode of political articulation that brought together politics, philosophy, historiography, as well as analysis, intervention and action. Stephen Marcus defines the manifesto, communist manifesto, as incandescent action writing, which aims to startle and alarm its audience. At its core, it is a vivid and dramatic representation of history, a damning diagnosis of things as they are, and a transformative vision of the future. It performs its power and authority through a fervish prose that conveys the frenzied and self-destructive nature of capitalism and the revolutionary impetus of history. In his thesis on Feuerbach, written only months before, his, before the manifesto, Marx outlines the urgency that will come to characterise the voice of appeal and impatience that colours the manifesto. He writes, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. And this particular uh, comment by Marx in, in the thesis to Feuerbach is something that André Breton repeatedly, I guess, refers to in order to kind of think about what surrealism does in terms of revolution and this kind of idea of changing the world. As Martin Pushner observes, the Communist Manifesto is a form of literary agency that develops impartial defiance of real existing circumstances, even as it seeks to enlist history as an ally in its own project. The Manifesto thus becomes, in the early 20th century, a complex ideologically inflected genre. It is this presumptuous and authoritative claim to change the world, along with a sense of urgency and impatience, that migrates into the various manifestos of the European avant-garde movements. Futurism, Dada, Surrealism, Vorticism, Imagism, Constructivism all use the manifesto to not only outline their beliefs and intentions, but to create rupture and succession. Futurism replaced symbolism, Dada replaced futurism, Surrealism replaced Dada, Vorticism, Imagism, and Situationism eventually replaced Surrealism. As a mode of the new and the now, the avant-garde manifesto registered the excessive demand of the political manifesto, declaring a complete break with traditional political, cultural and aesthetic forms. As such, it emphasised a logic of self-invention that demanded to be judged on the rhetorical force of its language. In the hands of the futurists, the manifesto became a radical new form of artistic activism and in some senses the master genre of the movement. So uh, some people have suggested that futurism actually produced more manifestos than it did poems or even artworks. 
Marinetti's iconic 99th Manifesto of Futurism shifts the manifesto's conceptual roots in revolution, which is a process geared towards emancipation, as we saw with the Communist Manifesto, to that of war, with a proto-fascist trajectory of annihilation and rebirth. Inserting the participants of his manifesto, of course all men, into a narrative of speed, action and audacious buffoonery, Marinetti signals the heroic and masculinised tenor of his new art form, one which relies more on exaggeration and sheer declarative force than internal struggle or even uh, reflective exposition. His manifesto thus cele famously celebrates the masculine qualities of aggression, courage, confidence and egotism and denigrates the feminine qualities of sentimentality, morality, dependency and predatory sexuality. In glorifying speed, courage and war, the world's only hygiene, and opposing moralism and feminism, futurism reflected a pervasive fear about the feminisation or the increasing feminisation of the public sphere establishing the manifesto at this particular historical juncture as a, an overtly masculinist genre. Like many others of its kind, the Futurist Manifesto begins with a foundational narrative. Here, a vivid description of an exhilarating late-night car ride and spectacular crash sets in place Marinetti's central metaphor for the movement's reckless abandonment of tradition. He writes, we stayed up all night, my friends and I, under hanging mosque lamps with domes of filigree brass, domes starred like our spirits, shining like them with the prisoned radiance of electric hearts. Let's go, I said, friends, away. Let's break out of the horrible shell of wisdom and give ourselves utterly to the unknown, not in desperation, but only to replenish the deep wells of the absurd. The words were scarcely out of my mouth when I spun my car around with the frenzy of a dog trying to bite its tail. And there, suddenly, were two cyclists coming towards me. I stopped short and, to my disgust, rolled over into a ditch with my wheel in the air. And, of course, here the machine, uh, the, 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 sorry, the car is, is symbolic of modernity. The bicycles are the kind of... Um, of the past and of tradition, who kind of get in Marinetti's way. The narrative preface thus serves as a foundational myth of futurist man, morphing into the hard metallic body and powerful engine of his automobile in order to overcome the pervasive decadent passivity of tradition. In aligning this new art form, the manifesto, with modern technologies, Marinetti sought to remove art from its traditional context context, the stultifying interior of museums and art galleries, libraries and other cultural institutions, as well as the private domain of domestic contemplation. Instead, the artist becomes the heroic figure of a new kind of public art, situated somewhere between political activism and mass media entrepreneurship. And the manifesto was indeed published on the front page of uh, the French newspaper Le Figaro, which Marinetti considered quite a coup, considering it was uh, not only it not only had the largest readership in France, but in a sense was also read in French-speaking countries around the world. 
the Futurist Manifesto thus increasingly emphasised the performative rhetorical and multimedia qualities of art, with the artwork's public emotional impact becoming paramount to its potential transformative power. And I think this sets in play what transpires for other manifestos of the avant-garde. In spite of the rhetorical conviction of its manifestos, futurism was fraught with contradictions. It was fiercely nationalistic and patriotic, in part because of Italy's marginal status within Europe, uh, especially in terms of its uh, belated modernisation, but also embraced the spirit of cosmopolitanism that increasingly defined a global modernism. It cultivated a heroic and often elitist vision of the artist, whilst also redefining the artwork within the realm of commodity culture and mass media. <coughs> Likewise, Marinetti's notorious scorn for women and denigration of feminism is complicated by his rather erratic association with the British suffragist movement. In 1910, as part of his tireless promotion of futurism across Europe, Marinetti read his manifesto at the London Lyceum Club for Women. Included in the audience were many of London's most militant suffragists. He also participated in a suffragette protest march, which ended in one of their notorious window-smashing campaigns. But while Marinetti was attracted to the anarchic energy of the suffragettes' militancy, with their disruptive public protests and media attention, he was certainly not interested in the specifics of their cause, which was, of course, votes for women, since he was opposed to the very institution, that of parliamentary democracy, that women sought legitimate entry. Rather, futurism relied on, and indeed celebrated, the irrational and chaotic nature of the emotions let loose by the disruptive energies of a public art. If futurism had used the manifesto form to advocate a revolution premised not on socialism but on war, the manifestos of surrealism would register up front their desire to combine Marx and Freud, although considerably transforming both. As the longest avant-garde movement of the 20th century, the manifestos penned in the name of surrealism helped to define and consolidate the movement over the years, which lasted roughly from 1924 to Breton's death in 1966, though some people would say that it still goes on. In contrast to futurism, which had encouraged the rapid proliferation of manifestos, Breton reduced the number of manifestos penned in the name of the movement and returned to the dramatic but also reflective exposition of the Communist Manifesto to underscore the movement's serious political mission. In combining avant-garde theatrics, which it inherited from Dada, with a socialist strategy of transformation and liberation, surrealism saw itself as more than just another artistic or literary movement. Although it was stridently committed to revolution, Breton's notorious resistance to official communist doctrine, who were themselves uh, notoriously hostile to avant-garde art, resulted in a radical expansion of the forms the Surrealist Manifesto might take. For Surrealism, the revolution was not the inescapable result of history, as it is with the Communist Manifesto, but a possibility to be actualised. What Breton elsewhere described, described as a philosophy of imminence 
or becoming, to fighting surrealism in the manifesto as psychic automatism in its pure state, Breton sought to name a process that encouraged a freeing of the mind from rational and utilitarian values and constraints, as well as moral and aesthetic judgment. Although often applied to literary and artistic endeavours, Breton conceived of surrealism as a wholesale revolution of the mind that would fundamentally transform everyday experience. In this sense, surrealism was less interested in the irrational for its own sake than in reconciling the contradictory states of dream and reality into a more potent form of reality, a kind of surrealist consciousness. Breton thus insisted on the actualisation of an experience of freedom based on what he calls, quote, our complete nonconformism. He thus begins the manifesto by noting how freedom and imagination have increasingly been exiled from real life experience, buried by the realistic attitude and the reign of logic authorised by positivist philosophy and analytic reason. As a result, Human experience, he argues, has found itself increasingly circumscribed, protect, protected by the sentinel, sentinels of common sense. For Breton, such a pragmatic and rational approach to life forecloses the innate unruliness of the imagination in opening up the full potential of human experience. Unlike the child, whose imagination, he suggests, knows no bounds, the adult is subject to the arbitrary authority of civilised life, which impoverishes the imagination in the name of utility and expediency. Breton thus writes, The mere word freedom is the only one that still excites me. Imagination alone offers me some intimation of what can be, and this is enough to allow me to devote myself to it without fear of making a mistake. While Breton praises Freud in the Manifesto for his fortuitous discovery of the importance of the dream for our understanding of psychic life, Breton nevertheless insists on a broader application of Freud's dream theory. He writes, It was apparently by pure chance that part of our mental world which we pretended not to be concerned with any longer has been brought back to light. For this, we must give thanks to the discoveries of Sigmund Freud. On the basis of these discoveries, the imagination is perhaps on the point of reasserting itself, of reclaiming its rights. Central to Breton's concern here is to apply the insights afforded by Freud's fundamental conception of the dream as a witness to the non-rational, non-civilising dimensions <coughs> of psychic life to social, political and aesthetic transformation. As such, he emphasises the redemptive capacity of the dream in, quote, solving the fundamental questions of life. In attempting to dislodge the dream's poetic essence, which had typified a romantic interest in dreams, the dream in Breton's manifesto emanates from a fully realised te technological modernity. Placed alongside the telephone, the cinema and the radio, all instruments that foreground a kind of disembodied talking and listening, the dream emerges as a new technology of inner perception and observation. In listening to one's innermost dream life and the dream life of the collective, Breton envisaged the dream as instrumental to the rehabilitation of human experience. 
the non-rational logic of the dream was therefore extended to the external manifestations of spontaneous and defamiliarised experiences, found objects, chance encounters, automatic writing, in order to disrupt the habitual patterns of experience. As Michael Sheringham argues, the Surrealist Manifesto does not begin by urging the reader to abandon real life, but to emphasise the Surrealist aspiration is directed towards what is latent but elusive within the everyday coordinates of existence rather than what lies outside it. It would take five or so years before Breton penned another manifesto, appearing in the final issue of its journal La Révolution Surréaliste, the second manifesto of surrealism took on a decidedly pessimistic and irascible tone compared to the first. A document that publicly excommunicated many of its early members, the second manifesto also raises the stakes of revolutionary discourse by aligning surrealism with the anarchic violence of the street, Breton provocatively writes. The simplest surrealist act consists of dashing down into the street, pistol in hand, and firing blindly as fast as you can pull the trigger into the crowd. Anyone who at least once in his life has not dreamed of thus putting an end to the petty system of debasement and cretinisation, in effect, has a well-defined place in that crowd, with his belly at battle level. While Breton's imagined act is, of course, a fantasy of rebellion, He's saying, who hasn't at least once dreamed of such an action? The rhetorical excess of this passage nevertheless reminds us of the slippage between the manifesto's verbal call to arms and the actual revolutionary moment in which habits of convention and obedience are suddenly negated. While Valerie Solanus's shooting of Andy Warhol was no random act of violence, it certainly exceeded the acceptable limits of the avant-garde, even while pushing the hyperbolic militant rhetoric of the avant-garde manifesto to its logical conclusion. So now I want to turn to look at the feminist manifesto. Many of the feminist manifestos that were produced in the 1960s as part of second wave feminism as well as those manifestos produced in the name of third wave feminism, namely uh, that came out of the right girl movement, contested the ideology of universalism as well as the foundational rhetoric of revolutionary discourse. While Marx's manifesto advocated universal revolution, its very formation within Enlightenment ideology necessarily enacted a revolutionary subject that was putatively male, remember, working men of all countries unite. The various avant-garde manifestos of the early 20th century inherited and indeed often actively enforced this exclusionary rhetoric. While manifestos and political tracts were produced by women at this time, i.e. in the early 20th century, um, the British suffragists, as well as individualist feminists such as Mina Loy, who wrote her iconoclastic feminist manifesto in 1914, their entry into parliamentary democracy, as is the case with the suffragists or avant-garde revolutionary discourse, as is the case uh, of Mina Loy, was always endlessly thwarted. Even in the revolutionary moment of the 60s, 
Feminist demands were met with the new left's deferral tactics of not now, not yet, or else a total denial that women's liberation even constituted a revolutionary program. Such a response produced the pr proliferation of numerous radical feminist groups, many of whom turned to the manifesto to announce their ideological permutations. Valerie Solanus's scum manifesto from 1966 was one of the earliest and most militant manifestos to come out of the women's liberation movement. While Solanus's manifesto had by 1969 become a kind of exemplary text for various radical feminist groups in the US, Solanus was horrified by the faddish popularity of her manifesto. Moreover, her 1968 shooting of Warhol projected her into the media limelight in a way that has fueled an enduring repre representation of Solanus as a misguided Warhol groupie in search of her 15 minutes of fame. What both responses overlook is Solanus's rather brilliant revision of the avant-garde <coughs> manifesto, in particular her highly parodic and exaggerated response to the hyper-masculinised tone of the genre. Scum brilliantly reconceptualises the historically gendered assumptions of the manifesto's rhetoric and performative practice, deliberately caricaturing the worst excesses of revolutionary and libertarian language. While the Scum Manifesto is a product of 60s protest culture, it is also something entirely outside of it. Solanus is the sole signatory to the manifesto and uses the extreme isolation of her views to mark out its radical and even violent agenda. Its provocative prose and hyper-performative verbal assault against capitalism and patriarchy signals what Avital Renal calls deviant payback for all those women-hating manifestos and their counterparts, the universalizers. In other words, Solanus deliberately upstages her manifesto forebears in a way that renders transparent the gendered codes that operate in terms of men's and women's speech acts. The deeply polemical and anarchic temper of her tract is established from the outset, she writes. Life in this society being at best an utter bore and no aspect of society being at all relevant to women there remains to civic-minded, responsible, thrill-seeking females only to overthrow the government, eliminate the money system, institute complete automation and destroy the male sex. Interpolating her audience as those thrill-seeking females brave enough to overthrow the political, social and economic institutions that she deems irrelevant for women, Solanus is deeply suspicious of an equal rights agenda. She thus argues, what will liberate women, therefore, from male control is the total elimination of the money work system, not the attainment of economic equality with men within it. End of quote. While Solanus's attack on capitalism echoes the anti-parliamentarian tenor of the historical avant-garde manifesto, its targeting of capitalism and patriarchy together is innovative in terms of its synarchic refusal to work within the system. As such, she's not concerned with a systematic critique of either patriarchy or capitalism, but with satirically highlighting the hypocrisy of these institutions 
and delivering ingenious solutions for what she terms fucking up the system. She writes, Scum will become members of the unworked force, the fuck-up force. They will get jobs of various kinds and unwork. For example, scum sales girls will not charge for merchandise. Scum telephone operators will not charge for calls. Scum office and factory workers, in addition to fucking up their work, will secretly destroy equipment. Scum will unwork at a job until fired, then get a new job to unwork at. <laughs> Here, the very logic of manifesto discourse, its antiness, becomes the sign of its own undoing. To work at unworking, to become a member of the elite fuck-up force, signals Solanus's astute decoding and recoding of manifesto rhetorical performance, moving it toward an arch-anarchist sensibility that is nevertheless reminiscent of the nonsense manifestos of Dada, as well as the post-situationist strain of 60s radicalism, with its mixture of direct action and theatrical improvisation. Solanus's manifesto language and the lack of political accountability it inscribes plays up the anarchic nature of the manifesto form, but in a way that reinforces the cultural marginality and alienation of women, even while it exposes as fiction the universalised category women underpinning the burgeoning feminist movement. As such, the manifesto revels in the rhetorical violence of the genre, while also repudiating all other forms of political radicalism on which it often relies. She writes, Scum will not picket, demonstrate, march or strike to attempt to achieve its ends. Such tactics are for nice, genteel ladies who scrupulously take only such action as is guaranteed to be ineffective. End of quote. <clears throat> Instead, scum operates on a criminal basis, preferring the guerrilla tactics of an elite core of what she called terms nasty, violent, selfish, independent, proud, thrill-seeking, freewheeling, arrogant females, rather than organised collectives. <coughs> By suggesting that the real conflict is between women, between those independent enough to subvert the system and those uh, deeply complicit within it, Solanus renders visible the deeply internalised misogyny necessary for the maintenance of patriarchy. In spite of its dominant mode of caricature, the scum manifesto insists on reminding us of the very real effects of violent language. As a woman who engaged in street sex work, first to pay for her university education and later a room in which to write, Solanus would have been acutely aware of the injurious effects of language. Scum thus records the wounds of misogynist speech, filth, scum, whore, as well as her solution for the destruction of patriarchy, the acronym of her title, Society for Cutting Up Men. But what makes this manifesto so startling, I suggest, is its systematic rupturing of its audience. While it at times woos with its street-smart wit and irascibility, it continually alienates its constituency by showing up the limits of both its universalist and separatist positions. As Janet Lyon contends, Solanus's we is strategically singular. Anything more inclusive would preclude the possibility for random action in the name of feminist anarchism, 
anything more inclusive would fix identity, thwart performativity, register a sexed normativity. Anything more inclusive would, in short, reify a category called women whose political history would most certainly outstrip its utopian possibilities. As such, the Scum Manifesto is powerfully prescient in revealing the tensions that came to define feminism across the 20th, indeed the 21st century. Tensions between universalism and individualism, between equality and difference, between mainstream and radical feminism. But although Solanus had been hailed as an icon of radical feminism by a small number of feminists in the late 1960s, her manifesto's staging of a violent and apocalyptic form of retribution resulted in its subsequent erasure from feminist history. That is, until its re-emergence in the early 1990s. The widespread reference to Salamis in Right Girl Zine <coughs> saw her reclaimed as a symbol of street-smart provocation and her manifesto a potent revenge fantasy narrative. Reviewing a new edition of the Scum Manifesto in 1993, Ruby Rich suggested that there was something intensely contemporary about Solanus's writing, noting the 1990s is the decade of the Riot Girls, the Lesbian Avengers, Thelma and Louise, the Eileen Warnoff case, and Lorena Bobbitt, the woman who cut off her rapist's husband, her rapist husband's penis. Who could forget that moment? While Rich identifies a certain madness in Solanus's manifesto, its despair and anger, she argues, exposes a potent truth about the ex destructive extremities of daily life, and that's a quote from Rich, that resonates with women in this period. Conceived from the beginning as a DIY revolution, Riot Girl began as a predominantly North American grassroots feminist movement inspiring similar activity across the globe, and it began in the early 1990s. The emergence of the zine as one of the primary tools of feminist activism in this period reignited an interest in the manifesto form. Although the movement had no official doctrine, its pervasive political slogan, Revolution Girl Stout Style Now, signalled a kind of collectivised rupture from mainstream socio-political life boldly juxtaposing the lexicon of radical protest and re rebellion, revolution in the title, with that of female youth, or girl, which is a kind of angry, roaring girl. The somewhat paradoxical figure of the girl revolutionary came to signify the disjunctive identity of the movement itself, caught between grassroots feminism and punk and fanzine culture, and which relied on intimate affiliative networks that encouraged the proliferation of like-minded individuals and communities. <coughs> if the girl is often figured within mainstream culture or indeed within certain strands, strands of feminist discourse as a quintessential figure of consumption and desire, or indeed as a subject at risk from both themselves and others, Riot Girl attempted to make her into something beyond a capitalist signifier for conventional formulations of beauty, commodification and sexual desire. In merging a punk rock do-it-yourself ethic with feminist grassroots activism, 
The movement challenged normative and oppressive forms of femininity whilst shifting feminism itself into a vernacular idiom that connected to the everyday lives and interests of teenagers and young women. The movement's widespread production of zines was instrumental in the proliferation of riot girl manifestos and they produced a lot. And I'm only going to talk about one today. Zines became a form then of participatory media that established local and extended communities around particular interests, music subcultures and of course feminist issues. The messy, crowded, do-it-yourself aesthetic of the zines was strategically demarcated from the professional, slick appearance of mainstream print culture. And you sort of get a sense in the image here of its kind of, not only sort of um, cut-and-paste style um, that evokes punk, but also uh, the early avant-garde manifesto. And in fact, it used uh, collage extensively in particular to subvert dominant forms of advertising um, in a way that I guess is similar to someone like Hannah Hock who, um, who sort of brought collage form as a critical genre to note. The content included a jarring mix of manifestos, satirical <coughs> polemic, intimate personal stories and letters covering themes such as rape, childhood sexual abuse, sexual harassment, jealousy and social and ethnic difference. The zines also included advice columns, lists of favourite zines and bands, essays, editorials and various forms of artwork from simple line drawings to collage works and defaced uh, commercial and media images. Feminism was thus reformulated through the intimate performance of everyday experience and cultural reappropriation. The disjunction between a politically charged manifesto rhetoric and intimate accounts and stories of women's personal experiences within the pages of the zines produced a kind of very striking hybrid cultural form that redefined radical feminism as a vernacular political mode of fractured discursive expression and contradictory lived experience. <coughs> What has become known as the Riot Girl Manifesto first appeared in the second issue of Bikini Kill, a zine created in 1991 by Kathleen Hanna. And of course, Hanna was also the lead singer of the uh, feminist punk band Bikini Kill. The two-page manifesto appeared to answer the question, why Riot Girl? Listing a series of maxims that begin within an emphatic uppercase because asserting the manifesto's rationale. It states, because us girls crave records and books and fanzies that speak to us and we feel included in and can understand in our own ways, because we must take over the means of production in order to create our own moanings, because viewing our work has been connected to our girlfriend's politics real lives is essential if we are going to figure out how what we are doing impacts, reflects, perpetuates and disrupts the status quo. Here the Right Girl Manifesto reconfigures the traditional lexicon of Marxist revolutionary discourse means of production through a disarmingly frank girl rhetoric with its vernacular insistence on moanings rather than meanings. As such, the manifesto recalibrates the very terms of political action 
by creating proximity and intimacy through everyday forms of sociality as well as more subversive guerrilla tactics that disrupt the status quo. The manifesto goes on, because we recognise fantasies of instant macho gun revolution as impractical lies meant to keep us simply dreaming instead of becoming our dreams and thus seek to create revolution in our own lives every single day by envisioning and creating alternatives to the bullshit Christian capitalist way of doing things. Refuting the manifesto's traditionally masculine bravado as the only authentic means of revolution, the manifesto insists on everyday forms of resistance as a tactical and creative response to the oppressive forms of Christianity and capitalism. This critique of a mythic revolutionary discourse was also evident in the inaugural issue of the zine Bikini Kill, which was subtitled, um, rather disjunctively, A Colour and Activity Book. As such, the zine announces itself as a little thing to give out at shows, immediately followed with the assertion of radical action in, in capital letters, and then there's the revolution. Here, the deliberate frisson between the announcement of the revolution and the zine as a colour and activity book provides a powerful counter-discourse to the girlish connotations of the zine and riot girl, girl culture more broadly, which was often kind of uh, um, conceived or often written about in the media as a kind of trivial pastime and also dismissed by um, other uh, neo-punk bands of the time. So they're really sort of, in a sense, playing up this kind of culture, cultural, this kind of, um, this way in which they get dismissed. <clears throat> For the right girl movement, the revolution shifts into the everyday sites of vernacular girl culture, the playground, the band gig and the zine. Radical resistance is thus transformed into a strategic site of resistance and political mobilisation forged around a rhetoric of both euphoric self-empowerment and didactic solidarity. In redefining the spatial and temporal logic of revolutionary discourse and action, riot girl manifestos often insist on the multiple and heterogeneous temporalities of resistance and intervention, reconfigured as ordinary everyday acts that defy the self-regulating scripts for girls and young women. The Right Girl Manifestos inaugurate, I would suggest, a new feminist political subject, configured through what Janice Radway calls insubordinate creativity. The concept of insubordinate creativity here aligns the fragmented collage aesthetic of the zine <coughs> with the inventive and often fractured identities enacted through writing and reading. Right Girl Manifestos thus com combine the creative experimentation of the traditional avant-garde manifesto with the consciousness-raising tenor of second-wave radical uh, feminist manifestos. While the manifesto traditionally revels in the contradictory pull of experimentation and dogma, Riot Girl recalibrated the lexicon of revolution by signalling the tentative creative and contingent forms of political mobilisation. Repudiating traditional revolutionary forms of action, as well as feminism's universalised subject, 
Riot Girls insisted on a highly flexible and mobile political subject for whom the discourse of revolution and civil disobedience signals both a collective fantasising as well as a disruptive public identity. In combining older forms of feminist politics with newer forms of post-structuralist theory, albeit often repurposing both to fit the experiences and interests of young women outside the political and social mainstream, right girls' political affiliations were diverse and tactical rather than singular and univocal, and yet determined to overcome the sometimes paralysing critiques implicit in theoretical dogma. As one contributor put it, there are so many ways to criticise feminism and everything else women work on together. Riot Girl is the first thing I've found that says fuck you to all the excuses. And that's from uh, Riot Girl, the zine Riot Girl, New York City. The ubiquitous homage to second wave radical feminist manifestos, in particular Solanus, in zine Riot Girl zines, suggests a relationship to feminist history that is contingent and mobile, forging connections that disrupt, disrupt a simple agonistic framework between different generations of feminist politics. Rather, right girls sifted through the past in search of forms of strategic connectivity, what Elizabeth Freeman has described as, quote, mining the present for undetonated energy from past revolutions. And so now I just want to end with a few reflections on Julian uh, Roosevelt's manifesto. Julian Roosevelt's video installation artwork, Manifesto, presents 13 audio text colleges compiled from a large number of art manifestos covering the early 20th century avant-garde as well as later contributions on architecture, film and theatre. The multi-screen installations juxtapose the heady language of the manifesto with 13 personas, all performed by Kate Blanchett, the majority of whom are women engaged in a range of contemporary professions and activities. A school teacher, a single mother and factory worker, a newsreader, a conservative Christian stay-at-home mother, a puppeteer, a stock exchange trader, a news reporter and so on. Reciting historical art manifestos as either internal monologues or delivered to an unsuspecting audience, a class of school children or a gathering of mourners at a funeral, the disjunction between spoken text and filmic image draws attention to the social, political and historical context of the manifesto form, its proletarian origins, and you get this wonderful uh, image of this figure here, of this woman about to go to work. I think it's in an incineration factory and she's dressed up like, you know, a revolutionary in green overalls and this red helmet and she looks like, you know, she's sort of this kind of Marxist figure. So there's some striking things in, in the visual way that the um, installation is presented and what, what the images as well as the text conjure. The distinction between spoken text and filmic image draws attention to the social, political and historical context of the manifesto form, its proletarian origins, its attempts to work across the interface between art, politics and everyday life, its critique of the destructive protocols of capitalism 
and of course its exclusion of women. In place of angry young men fulminating against tradition, Roosevelt's women perform ordinary tasks, struggling to overcome the disjunction between things as they are and a desire for things otherwise. Before a classroom of primary school children, Blanchette, in character as a young white middle-class teacher, directs her class to recite lines from Jim Jamusha's manifesto for the film. Nothing is original, steal from anywhere that resonates with inspiration or fuels your imagination. Authenticity is invaluable, originality is non-existent. And I thought that was particularly uh, nice for a university who spends much of its time fighting against plagiarism. <laughs> Jarring our sensibilities with a pedagogical plea for plagiarism in the name of authenticity, Roosevelt reminds us that although the manifesto is a genre premised on the new and the now, it is, like history, bound to repeat itself. Nevertheless, nevertheless each new iteration disrupts this circularity as well as modernity's charmed fable of progress by insisting on contestation, critique and rupture. Thank you. Thank you, Natalia. That was just an absolutely fascinating survey of the history of the manifesto, but really focusing on feminist contribution I think gives us a lot to go to the exhibition with. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's really, thank you very much for that. We do have time for some questions, and we need you to use the microphone, please. Oh, yes, my name's Joe. Oh, yeah. Interesting talk about manifestos that would have been sort of interesting to um, look at the reaction. Most manifestos are a reaction to uh, something uh, very much to the Second World War, um, mm -hmm. shell shock, um, with a new idea with Freud as well. Um, but uh, you're talking a lot about modern manifestos. You know, you have modern manifestos like Dogame 95, a reaction to American um, Hollywood culture. Um, <coughs> and we had Muhammad Ali, who died the other day. Um, and I don't know if anyone saw him on Parkinson, um, where he basically recounted the Black Power manifesto. And I suppose what, what, what I'm sort of worried about is that the intersectionality of uh, the Black Power movement. Um, I noticed that you, you refer to feminism, but it seems to be a very middle class, culturally specific movement. Uh, you didn't include uh, black female movements. And then also in Australia, we have, like, for example, the uh, Tent Embassy, which has its own manifesto in reaction to racism in Australia. So I'm just sort of, um, it just seems to be uh, sort of like a little, sort of very uncomfortable radical that we're sort of looking through. Thank you for your question. Yes, I think you're right, first of all, to take your question about the manifesto form being a reaction to history. It's very much tied to history in the sense that it reacts against particular crises, particular moments that test the status quo. I think, you know, in terms of both Valerie, I mean, I wouldn't really say that Valerie Solanus's manifesto is a middle-class manifesto um, at all. I think she's very much 
from the working class. She couldn't afford university education. I think race has made an incredible contribution to the manifesto form um, and I have, do talk about it in the book that I'm completing, particularly the way in which um, African-American women felt like fem many feminists, both outside of mainstream middle-class feminism, but also outside um, of the black power movement. So, you know, some of those manifestos were, uh, in fact, geared towards rethinking um, uh, the way in which uh, African-American women and women of colour have contributed to the kind of revolutionary moment. And here I'm thinking of particularly the Comedy River Collective Statement, which is, you know, a really decisive uh, manifesto that in some senses, senses gave birth to uh, the moment of identity politics in, in feminism. So I, I agree it is important and even though I didn't talk about them tonight, um, but I think you also have to do justice to the manifestos that I looked at where we, which were responding to very particular themes. So the Lawrence's <coughs> manifesto is responding to that 60s counterculture moment, but she's also, and I think this is what's been left out of kind of work on her manifesto, is the way that she's really astutely reading the kind of misogyny inherent in the avant-garde political manifesto, or sorry, the avant-garde uh, art manifesto. Can you talk about the kind of playfulness that seems to be in a lot of manifestos, it seems mm -hmm. to be an important part of breaking up like this serious, sense of the serious people are going to fix everything, whereas you want to include like, you know, normal people and creativity. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so I guess I would start by talking about Christian Zara's Zara Manifesto in 1918, which is perhaps, you know, one of my favourite and perhaps one of the most funniest manifestos, so if you get a chance, you'll have a look at it. Look at it. And I think Inherent in the genre is a, is a kind of humour, but not all manifestos are funny in that sense. So it does have this kind of, I guess, bad boy attitude or bad girl attitude, um, which brings out its humour. But at the same time, I guess, you know, someone like Marinetti very much was interested in that kind of hyper performative style that really tested, you know, people's kind of respectable sensibilities. Whereas Breton was really interested in engaging with the, the Communist Manifesto and with the works of Freud in a much more, I guess, serious way until I, I suppose we get to uh, the Second Manifesto and then there's a kind of more anarchic, violent level. So yeah, humour does play a role um, and plays a role, but it's also, they're also really quite serious. Um, so I think Dada is perhaps the exemplary kind of manifesto for humour. Um, but, you know, I think there's a, you know, it, even with that humour, there's a kind of serious political message that manifesto writers and, and groups are trying to get across. Thanks, Holly. Sorry. I love okay. to talk um, and learn a lot. So it's, it's, a, it's a really wonderful seeing this um, selective, but also quite comprehensive overview of the manifesto form and the way that it's it's repeated and transformed. So I don't know if this is so much a question. I'm going to think it out. But I, I kept thinking about, especially the way you ended, um, how in so many ways, as a genre, the manifesto uh, is a kind of repudiation of the past and whatever dominant you know, structures it's critiquing, whether it's patriarchy or capitalism or fathers 
right? <laughs> um, and rebelling against that to harden toward a vision of the future. That, and that's revolutionary discourse, right? That mm. by definition is something that cannot be solidified. So I, I, I need to read the Sky Manifesto again, ages mm -hmm. ago at uni, but in terms of that kind of playfulness and refusal, this kind of flirtation, mm -hmm. right? With um, that hypermasculine mm. discourse and that playing with it to subvert it, I was really interested in, in, in when you were doing that. And in response, I, I, I completely appreciate your comment. And that was something I was thinking of as well. I was thinking of the complexity of our collective statement and the ways in which when we when we talk about genres and texts that we have, it's a narrative that we tell, right? Mm -hmm. So, and the ways in which. Like, how do you, because I, I was like, if I, because I, I work on race and gender, and I'm thinking if I were to, how do we include? So I guess it's a question of um, the repetition of history, how we tell that history, mm. how, because I, I know in the book you do this, um, and it's also a, a, a matter of audience and a matter of time limit. So in terms of when we talk about particular tasks, so with, with Valerie, Solanus or the Riot Girls, they're obviously critiquing, right, and telling an alternative history. So that if radical women of color come in and critique that, I suppose the question is a huge one that you can't answer, and none of us can. What gets repeated? What must get repeated, right? And what newness comes out of that? And, and what does the manifesto form enable, I think, mm. within that sense? Uh, anyway, probably didn't make much sense. Thank you. So, firstly, I'd say there's two parts to your question. And the first part, I think, is that yes, you know, uh, women of colour and African American women have produced and, you know, manifestos that have made a contribution to, um, to the manifesto form and to, I guess, re the revolutionary subject more broadly. And, you know, and in, in talking about those histories, we do need to include those and look at for the ways in which they contest, I guess, you know, various forms of feminism, which, as you point out, my book certainly does that. But I think in terms of, you know, how we include them, here tonight I'm responding to, I guess, Julian uh, Roosevelt's work, which is about women's performance um, in relation, performance of everyday life in relation to the manifesto form. And it's history of, of um, exclusions, I guess. So I think in that sense, the, the kind of trajectory that I carved out was one that was in some senses predicated on his artwork, which begins with uh, the Communist Manifesto and takes us right through to uh, something like Jim Jamush's Manifesto on Film. So in that sense, the talk tonight was very much predicated on uh, that piece. But yeah, I agree, you know, that the kind of um, way in which we tell the history of the manifesto, and in the book I also talk about, uh, you know, the manifestos of surrealism that deal uh, with race as well, which I think are really important to early uh, uh, kind of moment of the history. So thank you. Carl Marx's manifesto was largely universal manifesto. The ones that are following it seem to be divisive and exclusive and exclusionary. Is that a, a general theme running through later manifestos? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that, that there's an inclusiveness to, to the Communist Manifesto, even, even if you kind of ignore 
working men of the world at night, but it is it being addressed to, you know, sort of um, the kind of legitimate political subject at the, at the time, which was the middle class European male. Even if you ignore that, I agree, there's a very kind of generous, generous quality to that manifesto. So by the time you get to say something like futurism, you know, it is really starting to narrow and that kind of, um, I guess, that dominant we um, pronoun of the manifesto is precisely this kind of, is a, is a fractured we in a sense because at the same time it's saying we, it's also saying not you, you know. It is not you but we and it's determining and I guess that's kind of the broader history of the avant-garde which kind of saw the emergence of these kind of subversive or kind of anti- kind of um, normative kind of coterie structures that sort of set themselves up, you know, in advance of what was taking place in terms of art and culture. So yeah, I think you're right. And then by the time you get to, you know, the, the, the um, feminist manifesto come on, like Solanus, there's just her, <laughs> you know. There is no one left. There is, and I think that's what interests me so much about it because it, it makes such a strong political statement in one sense, it points out, you know, the kind of hypocrisy of, you know, patriarchy and capitalism. It's, it's sort of very, um, you know, it's very resonant, but at the same time it kind of alienates everyone. It just doesn't just alienate men, it alienates women, you know, all women, feminists. So it's kind of, it, it, it's shrinking into this kind of, you know, very narrow we, this Galanus. Absolutely. And then that writers open it up again. They go way wide. Um, they don't want to have identities. They're post-identity politics. They want kind of, you know, to be affiliated across kind of interests. And they want to empower, you know, young women. You know, no matter where they are, any girl can be a right girl. There's no kind of exclusive club anymore. They've learned their lesson from that kind of moment, I guess, of a politics you know, grounded in identity. Um, so yeah, I do, I, I mean, I think the Rightful Manifestos are really interesting for that reason because they're basically kind of heralding, I, it's not a new feminist subject, they're, they're a really kind of transformed feminist subject. Um, and often when histories of radical feminism are told, they end with second wave feminism. So even histories of radical feminism that have been written in the last five years don't talk about right girls, and yet they're really kind of bringing into play this new sort of radical feminist subject, I think, that is quite interesting in terms of how it mobilises its constituency. Good question. I just wondered if you could, um, I don't know, give your opinion or share your knowledge on the many kind of contemporary manifestos that are really kind of making way at the moment, or, or more broadly what the role of manifestos are in the contemporary political um, well, people are people are always writing manifestos. Um, I can't bring any to name other than I gave a paper. Um, <laughs> I gave a paper at the Centre for Feminist Research um, at Goldsmiths in London, and and the paper was on manifestos. And I had a respondent, and the respondent actually instead of responding, you know, to this paper, you know, to, to my talk as a, as a written paper wrote a manifesto, um, and it's now in the book. <laughs> so it was just this wonderful gesture that people are still out there, really kind of, I guess, fascinated by the form, um, 
and really, you know, I guess compelled to kind of write it. So yeah, I, I mean, I don't think the manifesto is dead, though I think, you know, one of the really interesting things about Julian Roosevelt's work is that he makes it strikingly clear that what competes with the manifesto and this kind of performative language is in fact the image. Um, but in a way he's also saying, well, you know, if, if, if our lives have become so saturated by images, maybe there's something about the word and the word of the manifesto that is still compelling. You know, it's the kind of, it becomes this kind of rare thing that we listen to. And when it's performed, you know, in the words of the various women uh, in the installation, it becomes quite striking and you listen anew to those manifestos. Um, and, and that's why I loved the work because as someone who has read them um, for, for years now, when, when they're performed uh, by Kate Blanchett in the persona of, of these different women, they take on a new kind of charge. And I guess his own work now represents this new manifesto collage, if you like. You know, it's not just a homage, it is an artwork. So I guess that's your answer. Julian Roosevelt's work. Go and see it. Spend, spend an after half, you know, afternoon. It's very, it's very relaxing. <laughs> I wonder if you say something about the pre-Marxist history of manifestos and where all this comes from. Convicting stuff. Maybe do we include uh, uh, Marat's writings in the French Revolution? Yeah. Where does this tradition come from before it reaches? Well, it's not my Eric expertise, it's actually more Jennifer's area of expertise. All I can say is that, yes, of course, it, it predates the French, sorry, it predates the uh, Communist Manifesto um, in terms of the pamphlets that came out of uh, the French Revolution, um, but elsewhere as well. It's just not an area. I mean, it, there's an interesting chapter in Janet Lyon's book, um, uh, Provocations of the Modern. Provocations of the Modern, Manifestos, Provocations of the Modern. There's an interesting chapter in her book that looks, I think the revelers, the Russian Revolution, she goes through a kind of range of early kind of forms of the manifesto. Um, but I think most people argue that by the time you get to Marx and Engels, you're getting something, you're getting the birth of the modern manifesto in a sense. You're getting something quite different. So earlier forms were much more, um, I guess, narrative and style expository, you know, an argument. Um, there's something quite different about the Communist Manifesto to those earlier incarnations. Did you want to add to that, Jennifer? Give me... No, 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 I've been, I've been trying You're to... You're in the argument, not... <laughs> no, 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 I think those are great. Actually, the last two questions were a really wonderful way to end the lecture because it gets us thinking about the earlier history of what leads to the manifesto and how it takes a particular form at a particular moment that then gives birth to this entirely new tradition. And what we have with the exhibition is really a, a, a moment to think about what's the future of the manifesto and exactly as you say, how does the visual image relate to speaking the manifesto and reading the manifesto. So it's a really great way to end with those two questions. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming. But most importantly, thank you, Natalia, for giving us this lecture, which really um, was very enriching and gives us a lot to work with if we go over to the art gallery and look at this particular work. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much.